Father, we thank you that we can run to you, we can approach you boldly because by your own mercy and grace, though you are a in every way, are here with us as a group as well. Thank you, Lord, for gathering us. Help us now that we've sung to you and worshiped you. Help us hear your word to us so that we may always obey you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Good morning, Cross Point. You all must have had coffee. That was enthusiastic. I kind of oscillate nervously between being out here in the front and, and just behind this platform, and a wall, the paint was shaking off the walls uh, behind me here. In 1 Peter, we've been taking a journey listening to an apostle who was among the closest to Jesus talk to persecuted and suffering people. As I'm going to explain to you in this sermon, the first readers of Peter's first letter were really beginning to pay a price for their allegiance to Christ. Everything we just sang, everything we've done, the fact that I bowed my head and prayed to Jesus would have been thought insanity in the ancient world. Those folks would have been thought as traitorous to their family and possibly setting their family up for suffering. And that remains true everywhere people pledge allegiance to Jesus. Last week we were in a particularly difficult passage that announces that Jesus suffered one time for sin, and then because of his resurrection, his victory over death was so extraordinary and so absolute that he actually proclaimed his victory to the dead before he rose again. He announced his victory to everyone, including fallen angels. And saints in the Old Testament, like Moses and Abraham, who had died waiting for the Messiah. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1, where we are today, the message gets a lot simpler to understand, but it gets no easier to put into practice. If you'll open your Bibles with me in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1, and hold your place there, let me tell you about something that happened in 1972. In the month of December, according to the Federal Aviation Authority, Flight 401 of Eastern Airlines made a mistake. Here's how the FAA describes it. The entire crew was single-mindedly focused on the malfunction of a landing gear position indicator light. No one was left to keep the plane in the air as it headed towards a shallow descent into the Florida Everglades. Four professional aviators, any one of whom could have detected the descent, were so focused on a non-critical task that they failed to detect and arrest the descent, resulting in 99 fatalities. They failed to fly the aircraft first. There was no chance of me ever becoming a pilot, but I've made friends with pilots, including some that fly commercially and others that flew in special operations for the military. And one thing they've taught me, because anytime I meet somebody who has an interesting job, particularly if it's something I could never do, and that leaves a whole galaxy of options for me to talk to people, I always ask them about the core part of their job. What's the best part of it? What's the worst part of it? What's the most important thing to doing your job? 
And every pilot I've ever talked to has said in their own words, and sometimes nearly quoting the article I just read to you from the FAA, that the most important thing about flying is to fly the plane. <laughs> now that seems like the most obvious thing in the world, but have you ever texted while driving in your car? Have you ever known of accidents, including fatal accidents, because people were so interested in the notification on their phone that they forgot they were moving at 65 miles an hour in a crowded street? It happens all the time. The FAA article explains that there are three tasks in flying to aviate, to navigate, and to communicate. In other words, to fly the plane, that's aviate, to navigate, to keep it going in a direction that is favorable to its intended arrival, and to communicate with air traffic control to make sure there isn't trouble with weather and other aircraft. But the first, the article says, the fundamental task is to fly the plane. If passengers are having critical needs, if the tower cannot be reached, if someone in the cockpit, if a co-pilot is having a medical emergency, the fundamental thing for anyone in charge of the aircraft is to fly the plane. Because this airplane that killed 99 people in 1972, I can only suppose that they had good communication with the, air, with the tower and they, had, they were headed in the general direction that they intended but they didn't notice that their attitude had changed and they were slowly descending to a crash that would kill everyone. Why am I telling you this? Because when Peter turns his attention in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1, to begin to tell us what to do, the message is abundantly clear, but it's not nearly as easy to put it into practice. Let me show you what I mean. 1 Peter chapter 4, please. I've asked you to open your Bible. I didn't open mine. That's strange and sad. Just goes to show you that pastors forget fundamental things as well. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1, since therefore, and anytime you see the word therefore in the Bible, ask yourself what it's there for. Because therefore points backward. In other words, what Peter is saying, based on what I just told you, here's what we're actually going to do about it. And what he has just done is announce the overwhelming, absolute victory of Jesus over death. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. What's Peter telling us here? He's telling us that my mother was right. Because the most frequent thing that my mother told me while I was growing up, Peter told, my mom told me to fix my attitude. Anybody else saying that to anybody in the home? Attitude, she said, determines everything. Attitude is the most important part about you. Attitude determines in large part how your day is going to go. And that's what Peter is saying in so many words. 
Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Now that's a really striking way to phrase something. Peter says that you are to arm yourself, you are to bear weapons, and the weapon in this case is not physical, it is a manner of thinking. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. If you're having a hard time parsing his language, Peter is reminding you of the death of Jesus on the cross, which he's just told you resulted in his resurrection and his victory over what we fear most, which is death. And now he says, you take up, arm yourself, prepare yourself, equip yourself with the same kind of thinking that Jesus had. Does it ever occur to you that you should have the attitude of Christ in everything you do? Do you often have it? That's a serious question. It's not rhetorical. Paul says in one of his writings that we have the mind of Christ. In other words, if Jesus has given you new, you, new life, and if Paul says elsewhere you are a new creation in Christ, in other words, your old life is forgiven, and you yourself are transformed. You're a whole new creature. You have, if you're genuinely a disciple of Jesus, and he really did save you, you have the permanent capacity to think as Jesus thought, to have his attitude. It is a gift to you as part of your new life in Christ. It's not just that the slate is light clean and you're on your own to do whatever you please. No, you've been given a new heart and a new mind. You now have the capacity to think as Jesus did. And the serious question is, do you use that capacity? Do you practice as a habitual step in your life as you encounter difficulty and suffering and disappointment, as you feel the temptation of sin in your own life? Do you adopt the attitude that Christ, the Son of God, had while he was here on earth? That's what Peter's telling you to do. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Because whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Here's what that new thinking leads to. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, in other words, in the time you have left on this earth, no longer for human passions, but for what? The will of God. To put it as simply as I can, what Peter is telling us, what this paragraph is about is this. You are to arm yourself with the attitude of Jesus, which was permanently this, I will do the will of God. When Jesus was on earth in human form, when he actually walked among us, his resolution from childhood, according to Luke, because Luke and Luke alone gives us a tiny little window into the childhood of Jesus, and it says that Jesus the child did something that no human child does. He went home with his parents and submitted himself to them. Now, why was Jesus obedient to his parents? Because one of the Ten Commandments and much other teaching in the Old Testament, God's Word said that children should, can you guess? Honor, Honor and obey their parents. So Jesus perfectly obeyed God in every detail, even when he was a child. His resolution was to do the will of God. 
In other words, when Jesus was tempted and when Jesus suffered, in other words, when there was all kind of chaos and danger and distraction in the life of Jesus in the same way that an expert pilot will get himself and his passenger safely home by remembering to fly the plane, Jesus always resolved first and most to do the will of God. And he was tempted continually not to do the will of God. The book of Hebrews explicitly says that Jesus was tempted in every way, in the same way we are, but without sin. When Jesus was hours away from a mockery of an arrest and a brutal trial and a crucifixion, the last lesson Jesus gave us in prayer, he prayed to the Father, saying, between the Son and the Father, the Son said, not my will, but yours. May your will be done. That's what Peter wants to talk to us about, about an attitude adjustment to tell us to become disciples that are resolved to think like Jesus. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. That's a heavy verb. Your way of thinking is a weapon to safely get you through the battles of this life. Your way of thinking, if you adopt the way of Christ and not the way of your own mind or the way of some guru or the some way of some life coach or some self-improvement talker, which are so popular in our world, and just as I have warned, some who seemed at a time to be saying Christian things and have drawn great Christian audiences are now going off the rails and distracting Christians far from the Word of God and far from the will of God. Be careful with that. Jesus is not only your Savior, He is your example. He showed you in daily life the attitude which is that He would do the will of God no matter what. And if you're going to be a disciple resolved to think like Jesus, here's the first part of that attitude. This is what's so countercultural. This is why it's so hard. A disciple resolved to think like Jesus means this, that you'll choose to suffer rather than sin. And nobody chooses suffering very willingly and very easily. Where did I get that idea? From this strange turn of phrase in verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. In other words, His way of thinking. For, in other words, because whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now that's a strange phrase. Some people, not knowing what to make of it, get another religious idea, which is that suffering drives out sin and suffering purifies you from sin. Have you heard that kind of idea? Is it true? Absolutely not. It is exceedingly easy for people who are suffering to sin against other people and against God. You ever, here's a very simple, ordinary example. Have you ever torn someone's head off and been cruel with your words just because you were in a bad mood? Are any of you fundamentally different people when you're hangry? I mean, that's just normal life on a Tuesday. Your blood sugar's low, you've had a couple irritating things at work, you get an obnoxious phone call, and everybody in your house knows to look out, especially if you haven't been fed. It's not true that suffering cleanses and purges us from sin. What's Peter actually saying? 
Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. In other words, is done with sin, has turned his back from sin, has turned away from sin. And here's, what I, here's how I figure out what that phrase means. Whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions but, what's it say? For the will of God. In other words, what he's saying is if you choose to do the will of God, it will bring suffering into your life. It is costly to obey God. Salvation is free. Obedience to the God that saved you is costly. It is laid down in daily increments. That's why Jesus said that we should take up our cross and follow after him every day. Cross, the cross to Jesus was not a decorative element as it is for us. The cross for Jesus was an instrument of execution that was actually going to take his human life. So when Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me, what he is saying is, die to yourself and come live with me instead. And people who are serious about following Jesus and have adopted the attitude of Jesus habitually, no one does this perfectly, including the guy that's talking to you, but habitually as a matter of daily progress, of visible spiritual growth, people who take the attitude of Jesus choose to suffer obeying God than sinning and skipping that suffering. Here's an example from the life of Jesus himself. In John chapter 4, Jesus is talking to a notoriously bad woman. In John chapter 4, Jesus has a famous interview. I won't take the time to explain it to you, but Jesus is speaking alone to a woman of Samaria by a well in the heat of the day. And as it turns out, she is not only from a religious group that was antithetical to everything the Jews had been taught, she was a notoriously immoral woman as well. But he chose for his own reasons to bring the good news of God's salvation to her to go straight through Samaria. He orchestrated his disciples' departure so that he could have time to confront her and converse with her in a loving but clear way. And when the disciples got back, they were so thrown by it, they tried to distract him with food. You can read the story for yourself. And we do that all the time. Thanksgiving dinner, someone that you didn't really want to invite, but you have to because they're family comes over, says and does the kinds of things that make you not want to invite them, just destroys the entire meal. There's a terrible silence. Is this just me and my extended family, or does this sound familiar to anybody? <laughs> a terrible silence descends over the table, and then somebody says, boy, these mashed potatoes are great, aren't they? <laughs> oh, okay. We're back on track. Yes, Sue, thank you so much for bringing the mashed potatoes and the turkey this year. Oh, my goodness. I'm so, and now we're, we're on safe territory. The disciples tried to distract Jesus with food and erase what they thought was at least a misjudgment or a misunderstanding on, on his part and basically extricate himself and everybody else that was there out of this awkward, painful, socially embarrassing situation. Here's what Jesus said. I have food to eat that you do not know about. My food 
is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. He just left them in the fire. If you read the story, they say, somebody bring him food? They were completely out of step with Jesus. Now, if you're to adopt the attitude of Jesus, if you were to arm yourself with his way of thinking, are you at a place in your Christian life where you can habitually, nobody does it permanently, nobody does it perfectly, but where you habitually say, the most important thing for me to do is to do the will of God. In this social situation, in this difficult place where my integrity is being questioned, where I'm being asked to cheat and cut corners at work or misrepresent the truth or flat out lie and deceive people, in this socially tense situation where I'm being asked to celebrate and be part of something that I know is not pleasing to God, what matters most to me is to do the will of Him who loved me and saved me. I have to accomplish the work and the will of God in my life with the time that I have left. That's the first attitude of a disciple. You choose to suffer rather than to sin. And then Peter says, number two, you'll live for God instead of your old desires. Verse two, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh. In other words, in your human body, the time that you have here left on earth before your eternal life continues in heaven. You embrace suffering because you're done with sin because you want to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but instead for the will of God. Discipleship of Jesus can be simply understood as increasingly setting aside and growing out of the desires of your old life and embracing the desires and the values of the new life that God gave you. And here's the challenge that we have in the 21st century, just as Peter's raiders did in the first century. Culture, popular entertainment, social media, your peer group at school, your social circles that are so important at work, consistently reinforce the worst parts of human nature as a natural part of human development that you are to embrace and that you are to pursue in the tremendous journey of you being you. I've been keeping an eye on it since I read an important book from church historian named Carl Truman. Truman describes our present cultural moment as the culture of expressive individualism. In other words, that the most important thing that we can do in the West is to grow into what we imagine ourselves to be. And if anybody or anything stands in your way, urges caution, tells you to stop or head in a different direction, that kind of thinking is evil and wicked and repressive. Well, he describes it because he's a bright scholar educated at Cambridge, if I remember correctly. He describes it in fairly academic kind of technical language, but I've been watching for that with a keen eye in everything from the New York Times to popular culture ever since. Keep your eye out for it. 
the single most important value in America in the 21st century is for you to be you and for you to be, here's the word, authentic. Simple question. What if you're authentically wrong? <laughs> what if you're authentically deceived? What if the pursuit of your joy and your pleasure wrecks the life of your family? A hundred yards from here, years ago, he's long gone and I would never tell you the story anyway, but way back when I was a staff member, I had a man who knew better with the Bible open between the two of us tell me that of course he was pursuing an adulterous affair and leaving his wife and children because his understanding was that God loved him and so God must want him to be, can you guess? Happy. His expressive individualism involved, and it happened. I watched it happen for years. His expressive individualism destroyed his family for at least two generations. And unless God intervenes and rescues all of that and all of them, that destruction will have been rooted in the simple, understandable, but hellish desire to live for your old desires instead of living for the will of God. This is why it is so vitally important for you to know what the Bible says. I sincerely want to offer you the Word of God on Sunday morning, but if this is your primary intake of what God has to say, you're starving. If you're not reading the Bible and talking to your father with all of your questions and with all of your doubts about what you find there on a regular basis, if you don't have a community of other Christians, of fellow strugglers in discipleship for Jesus with whom you can share your burdens, and Paul says, so fulfill the law of Christ, so that you can navigate this deadly cultural moment and be pleasing to God, you're settling for far less than God would have for you. This is the message of 1 Peter chapter 4, that Christians in a dangerous time are to arm themselves, not with physical weapons, but with the mindset of Christ that was determined to be done with sin and to live for the values of God and God's Word. And then Peter gives us some motivation. He says in verse 3, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Here's what he means. You've wasted enough time on your old life. When you live for yourself, when you indulge your flesh, when you did what felt good, when you didn't care nearly as much about others as you cared about what you thought, Peter says, the time that you did that in the past, that's enough. You've wasted enough time on that already. For the time is that is past suffices. It is enough for doing what the Gentiles want to do. This is first century living. You tell me if it sounds much different than the 21st century. Doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Does that sound familiar? Somebody said that sounds like American college. See, I didn't know how that was going to go over. But I thought to myself, I bet if I say that sounds like college, they'll laugh. 
Now, I'm not judging you. The laughter is recognition. But lostness, debauchery, self-indulgence, drunkenness, sexual immorality is so common in the college years that we take it for granted. And Christians' parents say, going through a phase, no phase from God's design is intended for people he made and loved and sent Jesus to die for to rebel against him. You weren't intended to live that way. Now, I'm not talking to you as someone who has lived the values of the Christian life his entire life. My testimony is another matter, but I'm addressing you as a fellow struggler and someone who has been forgiven by Jesus as much as Jesus ever forgave anyone. The things that I did not want to do with my body, you better believe I planned and fantasized over in my mind. My heart was just as fallen and just as far from the values of God apart from Jesus as anyone who's ever lived. The cultural lie is that that's normal and acceptable and a season in life, and it's not. Peter is saying to scattered Christians that are now being persecuted for their faith in Christ, take up the weapon of the attitude of Christ. Jesus was done with sin. You be done with it as well. Jesus chose to live for the will of God rather than the will of the culture that lived around him. And you, please stop wasting time. Consider the time before you met Christ, time enough to live on your own life. And then, Peter warns, you're going to pay a price with people, but God will be the judge of your life. Let me read it to you in context. Verse 3, the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. How's that going to go over socially? Listen, you start living for God, here's what Peter tells you to expect. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same blood of debauchery. You ever been criticized for not being part of the party? Peter predicted that. They'll be surprised that you don't want to be as they are. They'll be surprised that you don't want to join them. And then, and these were my high school years once I started living for Christ. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they, what's it say? They malign you. In other words, first they're surprised by the difference and then they attack you for living differently. In other words, Christian, if you resolve to have the attitude of Christ and to live for the will of God instead of the will of the world, you may be considered no fun or you may be considered even a danger to society. That was true in the first century and it's true in the 21st century as well. I can't begin to tell you how many people quietly walk away from Jesus and at least keep their mouth shut in front of their friends about Christ because they just don't want to face the social pressure to live as they once did. I'm telling you all this from a position of 
humble brokenness because I was that boy in high school. I was, the, as far as I knew, the only Christian in my circle of friends. I got so enamored of being accepted by them that I shut up about Jesus, and that cost some of my friends their life and suicide. They went out into a, an eternity without Christ, and I stood at their graves not knowing anything about their eternal destiny except for this. The one person who probably could have told them about sin and salvation was too scared to do so because at 16, I just wanted to be one of the boys. That painful experience is one of many things that God in his kindness led, used to lead me first back to actually loving and living for him and eventually into ministry. I just wanted to be normal. just wanted to fit in. Didn't want to be the weirdo. In the ancient world, Christians were considered not only no fun, they were considered a danger to society because their allegiance to Christ as the one true God made them in the eyes of the culture something akin to God-hating atheists. Because they would not honor the family gods, because they would not offer incense to the emperor as a god on earth, terrible stories started to circulate about the Christians in the first century. They don't believe in any gods. They cannibalize people and eat them in their services. A gross misrepresentation of communion. They are a danger to the Roman Empire. And most of all, our family will be shamed out of existence. And the gods who are real will be angry with our family, angry with our city, angry with our province, and destroy them because they're so far from the gods. That's the context of 1 Peter chapter 4. They were suffering pressure and pushback and social, a social ostracism that is completely unknown to us. But in five years, in 10 years, in 20 years, it may cost us more than it does now to be identified as Christians. There are nations, as I'm preaching here, there are nations in the world where you check in with the authorities before you enter the worship center. You report to the government that you've arrived. Why is that? Because the government has that same ancient world mindset that these people are a danger to all of us. So at the very least, we want to know who they are so that when things get really bad, we can find them, round them up, Take away their means of living. I'm not talking to you about something I've read in a book. I'm talking to you about places I've been and prayer meetings I've been in where pastors in the moments that we were there had their tools, things they used to make their living taken away by the, by the government. And we had a prayer meeting since the government would not allow the man to do any other kind of work. And they just took his ovens away from him. And now he's out of business as a banker. We had prayer and the Christians began to speak in the 21st century just a few years ago about how we will support our brother so that he doesn't starve. Am I predicting that in the United States? Not at all. I'm a pastor, not a pundit. I'm telling you from the reading of an ancient book that suffering for the cause of Christ in the Christian life is historically normal. And in these days of peace, in these days of freedom, in these days of prosperity, you need to start arming yourself with the attitude of Christ to live for him with the life that you have right now. You don't want to stand with this crowd. 
In John 12, I read this. Read this with me from John chapter 12. Here's a snapshot from the ministry of Jesus and how Jesus divided people. Nevertheless, many did believe in him, even among the rulers, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him so that they would not be banned from the synagogue, for they loved human praise more than praise from God. You can't have both. You'll either have the praise of people or the praise of your father when you arrive safely home. And Peter says, arm yourself with the thinking of Jesus so that you can be praised by God. Verse 6 now, and we're done. Verse 4, rather, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. In other words, the people who may persecute you in this life will answer to God. He's the judge, not people. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. Now, what does that mean? Christians in the first century, having heard the name of Jesus for the first time, were very concerned about what had happened to their believing family members who had died before they did. You see, another accusation that was thrown against them by the pagan world, Christians preached eternal life and then had the audacity to die anyway. So the pagan culture around them said, see, they're no different. Their lives are actually much worse than ours and they die anyway, so what's the point? Why would you embrace someone who isn't there to suffer in this life and then die like an animal just like the rest of us? Peter wants to correct all that. This is why the gospel was preached even to those who were dead. In other words, your believing friends and family who've already died. This is why the gospel was preached even to those who were dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, in other words, they may have been hated in this life, they might live in the Spirit. What's it say there? The way God does. Your loved ones who have preceded you to heaven, they live the way God does. Can you imagine? You live a very, in a very small way, the life of God already. When you trust Jesus, you have eternal life. Your eternal life begins the moment you become a Christian. But it's interrupted by sin, by suffering, and temptation. I don't know if you've noticed. It's easily distracted. Your mindset gets wrong. You fail and disappoint God and yourself over and over and over again. Peter says, those who heard the gospel before you did and died before you have, they were judged in the flesh. All the way down on their deathbed, the culture mocked them and asked them, what was the point? All you did was embarrass our family. All you did was attract the judgment of the gods that you turned your back on in the name of this God who obviously cannot save you. Jesus himself faced that mockery on the cross, remember? Save yourself. If you're who you claim to be, save yourself and save us. No, Jesus died on the cross to do the will of God. And now Peter tells us those who die condemned by people now enjoy life with God, same as you will. You need to live now for the will of God. What am I trying to tell you? What does Peter want to communicate to us this? That living for God instead of yourself takes the attitude of Christ. 
And my gospel invitation to you, without a trace of legalism or human pressure in, in it, is to invite you in the name of Jesus to embrace his life and live it out, to live for him. And if it costs you money and it costs you popularity and it costs you esteem and whatever it costs you in this life, it will be worth it if only you will take the attitude of Christ and live to do the will of God. That's what matters most in this difficult moment. We have to do, as Jesus did, the will of God. Would you stand with me so we can pray together? Hey, maybe you're here and you have a really hard time understanding much of this message because you're not even sure that Jesus has saved you. You would characterize yourself maybe as a fan of Jesus, but not really a follower. Could I invite you right now to turn away from your sin and whatever's kept you from trusting Jesus and to be saved instead? That's a death to itself all on its own. Anybody who truly takes Christ as Savior confesses that he cannot save himself confesses that she does not know better, confesses that she has thought wrong, done wrong, is headed the wrong direction, and turns away from that and turns back to Jesus. I did that, and the majority of people in this room I trust have done the same. But what about you? Have you made a decisive turn in your life where you stopped living for yourself and surrendered yourself to Jesus? message I just preached to you won't do you a bit of good. You can't follow Jesus until you turn to him and trust and ask him to save you first. If this is your morning, you've heard the gospel before, but you've been holding on, you've been putting him off, I want to invite you right now to give up and surrender yourself to him. And Christian, if, 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 if you already have him, What's been pulling you away? What's been distracting you? What's been discouraging you? What things from the old life still entangle you, distract you? What's keeping you from having the mind of Christ to live for the will of God? Talk to him about it. Ask his forgiveness. Put a stake down and say, I'm... I'm increasingly going to try to be done with sin and to live for the will of God instead. That's always the way. It's either my will or his. No middle ground. I'm doing what I want or I'm doing what God wants at any given moment with any given thought or choice or action. Why don't you talk to him about it and tell him you'll live for him. Jesus, if there's a single person here this morning in this service that needs to call on you as Savior, I pray that they would right now. That they would confess themselves openly and humbly. Someone who sinned against you, sinned against themselves and others, broken your law, offended their own conscience. But now, God, they want you to save them. Give them grace to pray to you, to cry out to you and say, Jesus, I don't understand everything, but I understand that I need you to save and forgive me. I'm turning my life over to you. Give me eternal life and help me to live for you. 
And God, give that same resolve to all the Christians of this church. I pray that we would never just be a crowd, that we would truly be a congregation, a united family of faith that is determined individually and corporately to do your will. I pray that in Jesus' name. Cross Point says, amen. Amen. Love you, folks. God bless you.